Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast, brought to you from our local church in the beautiful city of York in the UK. The message you're about to hear is from one of our services, which also feature great live music and relevant movie clips. These can all be found on our blog, so to make sure you're getting the full experience, feel free to head over to qyork.co.uk and select blog to find the relevant content. There's also a huge selection of talks and live music videos on our media page, as well as a donate button if you'd like to show your appreciation and enable us to keep producing free content like this. Finally, to stay up to date on new blogs and events at Q, you can sign up for emails by filling in your name and email address at the bottom of any page on the website. But right now, it's time for the message. All right, well, good morning. Thanks for being here and friends who join us around the world. I'm getting another one off today, which is wonderful. Uh, last week, because of the... The content, obviously, once once every four weeks, we're trying to do what we did last week and have been doing a couple of times where um, we get the best of your reflections on what's being imparted and what's being said, which I think is very important, and it's important that we get your heart and feeling, because I think people are encouraged by different voices, but to Chris didn't really get a chance to share a lot of the things that she had on her heart, so... Um, she's graciously going to do that um, this week, which uh, releases me again a little bit. Uh, just uh, let your th- thoughts, uh, prayers, and your heart go out to Jenny Flintoff um, this weekend. She she had um, a blocked sewer. She has a leaky roof. She uh, started a second round of chemo this week after the mastectomy that she had, and the mother died on Friday. So any of you that are whinging because, you know, I don't know, the cat didn't come home last night or whatever, um, just think of Jenny and we send love, we send prayers, we send blessing. It's, it's an interesting season, the, the Christmas season. I've always loved Christmas. And I think for me, it's the reason that, of course, it didn't really happen in winter. In the bleak midwinter is utter nonsense that we made up, but it's a wonderful song. And it's so much nicer that Jesus was born in the winter, isn't it? You know, icy winds made blood. Something about it that's kind of cozy and nice. And thinking of uh, little baby Jesus in the freezing cold, uh, in the stable, wrapped up in hay and all that stuff. Um, but I think for me, what, what, I, what I like about it is that, you know, we, we're already into a winter season now. We're starting to experience the wet and the cold and the damp. Um, but the Christmas story brings us the whole concept that in the midst of all that, peace and favor rests on us. And I like the idea that in the middle of what for us is the hardest of seasons, the coldest of seasons, the bleakest of seasons that peace and favor is the message for that time. And so we're sending that to Jenny today. I'm a big believer in favor. I know Chris and I have had long conversations about this, and uh, we don't see it always the same way. But I believe in favor, and I believe in peace and favor. So that's my prayer for you today as we just impart to you what's on our hearts and go further in our little journey, that peace and favor will rest on you as you receive what I trust for you today will be life in the moment so that you can live life in the moment. So welcome and blessings and look forward to the morning. So who relates? Come on, who relates? Brilliant. 
Um, I think there's enough of a variety of stuff there. Uh, and we wanted to show that because I want to pick up a little bit on what Anth talked about a few weeks ago with what's the matter with matter. And I think you see from there that the, that the issue is while ever we make certain things very important, um, we, we actually ruin an experience so the matter is the paper the matter is the chocolate the matter is the what they're going to eat and the oven and all of that and yet the experience is lost and uh, I sort of wanted to start by saying that what matter is at the end of the day if, if you look at it from a materialized society that we live in what matter does eventually is kill experience and um, I was having a, a you know, a conversation with Claire the other day, and she was talking about the fact that um, uh, George had uh, bought uh, or asked for uh, a ball, and it cost six quid, and of course, what was he doing with it? He was playing with it, but of course, once he started playing with it, there was the possibility he was going to lose it, and then of course, Claire started to lose it because she didn't want to lose the six pound that she'd paid for the ball. Now, I know we've, we, we all get that, but it's because matter has become the dominant force and we believe that it is an expression of what we possess and what we have and we believe that ultimately it will bring us peace. But it's actually the source of our anxiety when all's said and done. So children want experience, but parents want tidy structure and right practice. And uh, we can resent our kids for not understanding how serious life is, especially when they just want to play. And we're going to talk about play a little bit later on. But I think you understand that we look at them and we say, well, you don't understand the pressure that's on my life. Um, you know, you don't understand. I could use that six pound for something else, but I've chosen to give it, give it to you. Now, you better look after that ball because it's got to last a lifetime. Come on, let's, let's be honest. That's how it can be. Now, I know for a fact that when, when Joel was little, he, he longed for this toy called a hamburger haven. Or was it hamburger heaven? I don't know. I can't remember now. But it was like a stall, a market stall. Oh, and it was brilliant. It was gorgeous. But of course, it ended up being tipped over. It ended up with the chips in the fruit part. And it ended up with just everything all over the place. The little signs that had money that told you how much things were. They ended up getting in, in, in boxes of other toys. And it drove me absolutely bananas. So I set it up beautifully in the corner. So it could be looked at. But could he play with it? Oh boy. And so in the end, he did not experience fully what he wanted. Now, I also remember another story. Um, Connie used to go to my mum's uh, bedroom and get the Chanel number no. five. And uh, she used to, look, she's nodding her head, she can remember it well. And she would put it on like there was no tomorrow. And uh, my mum would say, Connie, stop wasting the perfume. And, you know, she didn't take a blind bit of notice. She kept, you know, but the truth was that perfume had been on that dressing table for 20 years. I am not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. But of course, for Connie to wear it, it was wasting it. And I remember, excuse me, having a revelation. And I said, mum, the only way that she will waste that is if it's kept in the bottle. Oh, I seem to remember a story in the Bible when somebody was wasting perfume, anointing somebody's feet. 
I wonder if that's what Jesus meant when he said, if you keep it, you'll lose it. But if you lose it, you'll keep it. Maybe as we've applied some of the principles of Jesus in a very wrong way. So um, another story, if I, if I dare, Anth was in Las Vegas and he decided that he was going to have a go on the uh, slot machines because why would you go to Las Vegas if you're not going to have a go on the slot machines? So he allocated himself $25 and he was going to go and see what he could do with this $25. Now, because Connie at the time was quite young and I think... Um, uh, What's she called? Amy. Amy was with us. They weren't allowed to, it's called loitering. You know, you're not allowed to loiter under underage. So we went back to the apartment and Anth stayed and played. Well, a little while later, he came back to the apartment and he was so depressed. It was unbelievable. Why? Because he'd lost a lot of money. And I'm going, well, what do you mean you've lost a lot of money? He says, well, I got it up to nearly $300. He says, but then I played another, another round and I lost it all. And he was absolutely just de desperately in, in, in despair. And so I said to him, I said, but you haven't lost $300. You've spent £25, $25. But could he get his head around that? Oh, no, I've been such a terrible... Now, nobody's advocating gambling here, so please don't hear me wrong. But what we're saying is he chose to spend £25 on a game and when he lost it, he came away. But he was so absolutely devastated. So, another story. What? He's still, oh, like he's still, oh my goodness. Then the ministry's for you this morning, Anthony. We're going to get you there. We'll, we'll drag him over the line, shall we, this morning. There's another story that I had as a, a child. My mum gave me a little book. Some of you older ones may have heard of a, a writer called Florence Barclay. She wrote very old Victorian books and I still have, I've still got them to this day. But there was a story that tells of a little girl who was constantly in trouble for picking the roses in her mother's garden. And sadly, the little girl, she's tragically killed. And in the, in the grief that was there, the mother picks every rose from the garden and goes and lays them on a cold, dead body. What she would give for her daughter to be picking those roses once it's gone. And we all know that. And we all say that we wish. And of course, it's about regrets, isn't it, later? But unless, we're never going to change this way of being unless we realise that experience is far more important than matter. Now, why do we struggle with this? Because experience has hurt they cause us pain, unless, of course, we can guarantee the outcome by our control. And we want the experience not to cost us anything. Um, the matter with matter is that we measure our sense of security from it, what we have, what we own, what we possess. And it becomes a sign that the, the good side has won. And it's an indicator of our wholeness. But life doesn't work that way. It's full of opposing forces that have to be reconciled. And this morning, we're going to have a look at how we do this. Maybe that's why we're told we need to become as little children, because adults have forgotten how to play. Yeah? So I don't know what's next, because I haven't got me set with me. So do I get down or stay here, or what do I do? Somebody help me. Oh, it's you, great. So I now want to move on to when Anth was talking about... Um, something. 
and I've gone and forgotten. It was the one with the um, hamsters. The hamsters spinning was in the hamster syndrome because he touched very uh, slightly on something what was called the middle way. And I thought you might just like to know the background behind that because it's very, very interesting. In the reconciling of opposites that we all find very, very difficult, you know, we know that black here, white there, and I'm happening to be stood on a very white stage, that we see them as opposites. And, um, you know, it's very clear. We, we, we all know what we mean by opposites. And it's not so easy to know how to uh, reconcile them because it's actually something that we're not taught uh, how to do. In fact, we're more likely to be taught how to recognize opposites rather than reconcile them. So I wanted to talk to you about... <clears throat> The Buddha's enlightenment, and you think, oh, can you do that? Yes, because we can embrace truth wherever we find it, and we're not afraid of that here at Q, because we're on a quest to learn. And um, it's a very interesting story, and I'll just give it to you very quickly, because I want to put some uh, thoughts around it. But basically, uh, Siddhartha uh, Gautama, if I've pronounced his name wrong, I'm sorry, but he, he was just a regular guy, although very rich, very wealthy, lived in a palace. And for most of his life was very, very sheltered from the suffering that was in the world around him. He, he'd just be kept away from it. He lived a life of pleasure and really didn't have a, a clue what was on, going on outside. Until supposedly he once witnessed the suffering of people out in the, the city or wherever. Um, watching people suffer and he couldn't, he didn't understand why this was because he'd never experienced it before. So the story goes because I know how stories get messed with but enough, enough said for that for now. So anyway, apparently he left the palace and he decided that he was going to go on a quest uh, to find the answer to suffering. How many have done that? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's gone on forever, hasn't it? And do we, do we find out what it is? Well, we, people come back with ideas. But anyway, so he lived in the forest. And for six years, he, he basically starved himself to the point of death. The story goes that uh, he would drink rainwater. He, he would eat bird poop uh, or anything that was just in the forest. And uh, on the verge of starvation, uh, one day he sort of, I wouldn't say walked to the river, he, he rolled down to the, the edge of the river and uh, there was a, a boat going by and he heard a guru who was sat on the boat talking to one of his students and he said these words, if you tighten the strings too tight, they will snap. If you leave them too slack, the instrument won't play. Now, whether it came from the Buddha or wherever, those words are quite astounding if you get hold of them and let them sink into your, your being. If you tighten the strings too tight, they will snap. If you leave them too slack, the instrument won't play. At that point, it's said that the, the uh, Siddhartha, let, let me call him just Siddhartha, that's his name for crying out loud. Siddhartha had the revelation and his quest was over because his eyes were open to a very important truth. He had been following the wrong path uh, for six years because he thought that if he went the opposite of pleasure and go to complete suffering, 
he would figure things out, but he didn't. All he did was go to an extreme. And he recognized that there was something about the middle way that made sense, a one of moderation. Because you see, the, th the thing is about extremes, they are seductive and the ego loves them. Honestly, I wish you could understand that. Extremes are. And why is it in religions we get so, oh, don't we love the extremes? Thou shalt not, and you must this, and you must that. Oh, extreme. I'm holy. I'm wonderful. Meanwhile, we're making sure that people out here know that they're not. See, extremes. When it comes to inclusion, where are we? But in the middle. So it's, a, it's an incredible situation. So anyway, to, to sort of quickly get on with the story, he, uh, he found that he understood. And so let's look at this. If a thing is too tight, it requires too much effort and creates tension rather than ease. Question, how many of us live in this place of tension and dis-ease? But if a thing is too loose, not enough exertion is required. There needs to be enough to keep us awake so as not to constantly drift into dullness. How many of us live there? See, extremes. So he found the middle way, the, the space between positive and negative absolutes, avoiding extremes. And as I've said, self-mortification was no different to the life of pleasure. And it doesn't lead to, lead to freedom, but the ego absolutely loves them. Now, I want to liken that to, as I said a, a, a second ago, the way of the spirit was always taught to me as an extreme because I was taught that the spirit was at one side of the, of the thing and flesh was over here, right? So what were we doing all the time? Trying to crucify the flesh and live by the spirit. All our time we're spending crucifying the flesh. And I have to be honest, I've realized that that, that was as much ego-driven as I've already said. There was a scripture that said, if you follow the Spirit, or, well, I'm taking it out of context, really, so I might be making it up. But um, there's a scripture that I recall that says, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So what are we trying to do all the time? Get to this side of an extreme. So, the messy middle... And, and I just want to say here, be careful nines on the Enneagram. Don't think yourselves as being in the middle because you're actually not. You're at an extreme of no conflict. Just remember that. So I don't want anybody to think that somebody who's... Because nines are lovely people. They are so cooperative and want to really help and be uh, on the side of everyone. But actually, it can be incredibly extreme. So that's all I'm saying, and I'm not picking on your nines, I just want to give you a, a little bit of, um, of help there. So anyway, Rumi had a quote, and, which was interesting. No, he was, he was uh, from Islam. So we've got another person from another stream who's saying something very similar. He says this, look at this example. Your hand opens and closes, opens and closes. If it were always a fist or always stretched open, you would be paralyzed. Your deepest presence is in every small contracting and expanding, the two as beautifully balanced and coordinated as birds' wings. Now, isn't that lovely? There's some life there, isn't there? You don't go around with a clenched fist. You don't go around with an open hand. But it's always opening and shutting. And that's a, 
a lovely example of the middle way. Now, let me just quickly finish this story. He ate for the first time in six years. This is the data. A woman passed him, looking at him half dead by the river, gave him a bowl of rice. But his followers felt betrayed. Oh, isn't that interesting? They said, we can no longer follow you. You've broken your vows. And they left him. Where have we heard that before? But he pleaded, no, to learn is to change. Ooh, how wonderful. And I want to say here, the problem with credibility, one has to continue to believe the same thing forever in order to be credible. And what many confusedly consider to be stability is nothing more than stagnation. I have met many wonderfully good people over the years who were taught the lie that to change one's mind is a form of weakness and that doing so is tantamount to confessing the life lived under a now-discarded belief to be illegitimate or a waste. And I want to end by just saying this before we move on. The man who never alters his opinion is like standing water and breeds reptiles of the mind. Ooh, I hope you're ready for the next chapter. His running days were over. Why? Because he'd reconciled opposites. When he started running, you don't get the bit before. He started running, he'd just lost his mother. And things that he felt very much about, the matter in his life, you know, the very important Jenny, if you've watched the film, wasn't materialising and therefore he couldn't reconcile his life with those things, but suddenly, what was the phrase? My mom always told me, put the past behind you. And at that moment, the revelation dawned and he said, I can go home. And I'd love us to find today that home is that middle place, home. We can find home in that center because it's neither opposites where, of course, our ego is having a great time, but there is no freedom. I'll follow you anywhere, Mr. Gump. We've heard that before as well, haven't we? What are we going to do now? I know. We'll start a church. I'll start a movement. And I wonder if Siddhartha and Jesus have actually become idols because the experience that they had, they never start themselves, but they're made by somebody else based on the experience of someone else. So religions are what become of people trying to understand someone else's experience. If you think about it, Siddhartha became the Buddha. Jesus became the Christ. Who gave them the the? Have you thought about that? Who gave them the the? I know that I can give the to lots of things. There's a great one at the moment, the science. Who gives it the the? Are you following me? It's because it's become matter rather than it being left in the place it's meant to be. Did you know that neither of them wrote a word about themselves? And listen to this, I find this incredible. Siddhartha would not appoint a successor because he said this, that everyone needed to work out Excuse me. You've got to wait for the punchline now. 
He said that everyone needed to work out their own salvation. Ooh, now that's interesting, isn't it? After he was dead, a council got together. Hello, where have we heard this before? A council got together to decide the teachings of the Buddha and all of the 225 rules that now must be adhered to in order to be a true disciple. Sound familiar? It's supposedly based on the Eightfold Truths of Buddhism. And guess what? I'm not going to give you them all. You go check them out. All the Eightfold Truths are do right, think right. It's all about doing things right, which ends up being what? An extreme. I hope you're getting this because I think it was just very, very inspiring to me. I wonder if Jesus and Siddhartha had the same message that we have to own both the opposite to the point that the two become one. Now, if we think about the Garden of Eden and the story there that can tell us all sorts of things, it's very interesting. We can look at these two trees, and I've been raised to believe this, that one was the tree of good and evil, but if you ate of it, it, it was wrong, it, it, you died. The other tree was the tree of life, and yet, somehow, sorry, I've just got, <laughs> it's called uh, nerves and passion. <laughs> Apologies. Apologies. Um, we can, because we're told to eat of one and not the other, again, it can look at one is right and the other is wrong. But what about this? Can I just offer you a thought? That what if the tree of life was not void of good and evil, but had fully assimilated both. And that's why it could rightly be called the tree of life. Oh my, doesn't that just put a different spin on it altogether? This is what real life looks like. Both opposites being put together and seen as one. So the church has encouraged this kind of hiding we try to eliminate the bad and ad advance the good. It's offered a saved pill, telling us to pretend to be holy while we accuse the world that they're not. So, I'm being honest, I've lived most of my life at one extreme or the other, but I'm finally learning to reconcile the opposites. The Buddha did say this, I'm not going to call him the Buddha. I'm going to call him Siddhartha. I think he deserves to be called by his name. Don't you reckon? The Siddhartha said this, Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and sorrow come and go like the wind. To be happy, rest like a giant tree in the midst of them all. Oh, I think that's wonderfully freeing because there is a unity that underlines all opposites. And life consists of conflicts from encounters with them. And it can feel like we're in a battleground. We even talk in terms of the battle between, right? But if we are willing to take away that battleground, we will discover the harmony. When we keep them separated, there has to be a winner. Hence, we live a life of anxiety. Does anybody relate to that? So the danger of separating perceived opposites is that we ourselves find ourselves separated. We are finite. God is infinite. God is holy. We are not. 
the moment I recognise that I and the Father are one, then the harmony is found. Where do we find that? By putting the two together. Now, there is a, a, a lovely thought that's given by, and I'm moving on a little bit because I don't want to take up too much time, by, um, hang on, I'm jumping too far. Uh, ah, yeah, I can't miss that out. Okay. Alan, what? Oh, I've just turned it off. Deary me, sorry about this. <laughs> oh, right. Um, if we realise that opposites are fed by feeding the other, we can actually end the conflict by recognising one cannot live without the other. And instead of looking at them as a conflict, we can see it as a polarity instead. Now, this is a thought from Alan Watson. If you've never encountered him before, have a look. I'm not saying everything that he says you'll agree with, but we're open, aren't we? He says this, it's, it's wonderful. He says, if you take a magnet and cut the end off one side, because you know a magnet's got poles, hasn't it? And you cut off one end trying to rid yourself of one pole, what happens? All you do is take the end a little further in. You still have a, the, the two south and north poles. It's just that you've brought it a little bit further towards the middle. You only create a new end. And he goes on to say, forces come from what seems like poles apart. They seem to have nothing in common, but that's because we're thinking eccentrically instead of centrically. We haven't realised that self and other are the same. Life and death are the same. The ins inside and outside are the same. Back and front, you, you get me. So can we embrace these polarities? And this is where I want to bring you to the, the thought about play. Because that point at the beginning was if you tighten the strings too tight, they snap. But if you uh, leave them too slack, they won't play. Now, I know we can have a bit of a play on words here, <laughs> can't we? But it's quite interesting. He talks about, Alan Watts, he goes on to say that we've considered playing the opposite to work and maybe not taking things seriously. And I know that I've lived a very serious life. I was told that everything was serious. There was nothing really non-serious. That's why I struggle at parties, because I really don't know what I'm meant to do at them. It's like, what's this for? I don't get it. It's really weird. Life's serious, you know. And um, we take our existence very ser seriously. We ask questions. How am I going to survive this? Am I going to survive this? So we say that life is serious and it's not a game. And we associate playing with games. And yet we've, we, we know that people will talk about the game of life. So it's, it's all very uh, interconnected. But we're told, and this is what Alan Watts goes on to say, we are told the universe is playful and it is best understood with an analogy with music. Existence is musical in nature. It's not serious, but is a play of all kinds of patterns. It's made up of vibrations, sound, silence, on, off, waves, crests, troughs, and you can't separate the two. Like front and back, positive, negative, they're different, but they are one. Different can be 
inseparable. And sometimes we don't like that. We want to separate them in order that we might control what's going on in our lives. We think of life as constantly aiming for destinations, but it seems that the universe doesn't work that way. It's not in a hurry to get anywhere. It doesn't have an end game like we do, always looking for that end point. The example can be here that we can live to retire then when we get there, we don't have the energy to do anything. For some of us, for a lifetime, the end game was getting to heaven. But the main aim of any musical composition is not to get to the last note of the chord. Otherwise, the faster music was played, the better it would be. Yay, the end, the last chord. Woo, let's go home. Nobody goes to a concert and sits longing for the end. In fact, they don't want it to end. They encore want the music to go on. We can cheat ourselves out of a glorious journey and deny ourselves the whole experience by not reconciling the opposites. Life is a musical thing and we are supposed to sing and dance while the music is being played. Our world is made up of inseparable differences and get this, a mystic is one who is aware of his inseparable unity from the universe. He is sense-able. Through his senses, he knows how the world works and is willing for his life to be part of the play. Let's be mystics. And just to end, it puts a, di a totally different light on the phrase, you've been played. Be a winner at the game of life. Reconcile the opposites and let your life in the messy middle be played as a beautiful song for all to hear. And I'm sorry I read that last bit, but I knew we were starting to run out of time and, and I wanted just to finish it off. I hope that's been helpful. I've tried to be honest about my life and I know that I haven't lived. I haven't lived in the middle. I have been very extreme. I have wanted to control everything and, and, and I've been raised to believe that. But understanding that you can't have one without the other. And like I said a, a bit ago about the tree, if you recognise that the reason why the tree of life is life, it's because it's a simulated both. And it's not trying to live at the extremes. And I think if we would understand that what we've been offered is to eat fully at the tree of life in the messy middle, I think we'll find we can be winners in this situation. So I've asked Joel and Connie to finish with Inseparable. And I know it can be a song that's sounding like two people, but if you can sort of transfer these words to just put it into context that we are inseparable from everything. And whether you like it or not, I mean, some of you, it's, it's gone down like bad medicine this morning because you're desperate to rid yourself of all the rubbish. You're desperate to get rid of it. You can't. Stop trying to cut the end off the, the magnet and just centre yourself and recognise that in the middle you are there to be played as an instrument. Uh, that's it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. Now, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, then we would love to hear from you. Feel free to drop us an email to info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. Don't forget there are blogs and all sorts of media to be enjoyed at qyork.co.uk, which are welcome to browse at your leisure. Until next time, enjoy the quest. <laughs>